Well, hello friends. Uh, my name is Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. And we've been looking this past month in our weekly teaching times at the life and experiences of a man named Job, who could have easily claimed based on his experiences of loss and tragedy that he had the worst year ever. And the poetic book of the Bible that chronicles his experience is tucked away. It's part of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. It makes for some fascinating, if complicated, reading for us. So the beginning of the book, you might remember, Job starts at the top of the heap. He's a man of great reputation in the ancient world. He has an amazing family. He has incredible wealth. But then he experiences catastrophic financial loss. And then his seven sons and three daughters die in a horrific accident. And then his personal health deteriorates. And the rest of the book of Job begins to delve into the very normal questions that you and I and most anyone would ask when bad things happen. Why? Why did this happen to me? Was it something I did wrong? Is God somehow involved in this? Is God punishing me or us? And so Job gets into a series of extended poetic arguments with his friends about the root cause of his suffering. And his friends argue that since God runs the world according to justice, then obviously Job must have done something unjust and Job must have sinned. How else, they say, could you explain what has occurred except that God was punishing Job for wrongdoing? Or perhaps, they argue, Job's suffering might be designed to build his character, maybe to warn him to avoid some future kind of sin. And these arguments can sound convincing according to the laws of cause and effect. And there are those in Job's day, like his friends, or in our day as well, that assert that God mechanistically rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. That's just the way the world works, they say. But we're gonna see today in the end of the book of Job that both that vision of God and that sense of that that's how the way the world works is both flawed. As the book of Job progresses, Job begins to grow a little bit agitated with this unhelpful advice from his friends. And so the book actually starts to read a little bit like a legal drama with the friends presenting their case and then Job stepping in to refute it. And then Job registers an objection and his friends counter object. And they're almost like lawyers arguing their case in front of other lawyers. They go back and forth and back and forth. And uh, I'm actually up for jury duty at the beginning of March for my very first time. So I'm intrigued to see how all of this works in real time. But if we keep with this courtroom theme, at various points in the book, Job demands that he gets a proper hearing with a proper judge, that being God. Job, like many of us in times of difficulty, looks to the heavens and pleads to God in Job chapter 10, verse two, don't simply condemn me, God, tell me the charge that you are bringing against me. And then in Job chapter 23, verses two to seven, he puts his request most plainly, quote, if only I knew where to find God, I would go to his court. I would lay out my case and present my arguments. Then I would listen to God's reply and understand what he says to me. Would he use his great power to argue with me? No, God would give me a fair hearing, says Job. 
By chapter 31, verse 35, Job is at a fever pitch. After all of the advice of his friends, he says, if only someone would listen to me, look, I will sign my name to my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser write out the charges against me. I would face the accusation proudly. I would wear it like a crown, for I would tell him exactly what I have done. See, friends, if this were a courtroom drama, Job wants to change the seating arrangement of the courtroom a little bit. He wants to, in author C.S. Lewis's famous phrase, put God in the dock. Job demands that God take off the robes and the role of judge and move into the witness stand so he can be cross-examined. Job wants to put God on trial for falsely accusing him. He wants to uh, see if he can test God and test this case as a breach of contract. He wants an answer for why his life has gone from hero to zero. He wants to know, what has he done to deserve this? Because Job continuously asserts his innocence and he demands to cross-examine the Almighty. And then when we get to chapter 38 of the book of Job, the most amazing thing happens. God actually answers Job. God speaks and for four chapters gives Job and us an incredible picture of the universe. Job has challenged God and now God is coming to challenge Job. God is going to expose the limitations of Job's understanding. In some ways, God actually turns the tables and puts Job into the witness stand for cross-examination. But intriguingly, even though the speeches last for four chapters, God actually does not explain Job's suffering, nor does God condemn Job, which I'm sure Job's friends fully expected to occur. God flips it, puts Job on trial. And I want to thank Ali Nicole for so capably reading part of that text for us today and to our digital team, Brady and Jeremy, for assembling the footage to help us engage with scripture in a more visual way earlier. With Ali's British accent, it kind of felt like a bit of a BBC Earth kind of moment, didn't it? But I want us to take a few moments to trace the contours of Job's response and God's response to Job. And then we'll look at what that means for you and I before we deal with a bit of a puzzle as to how the book ends. So in Job chapter 38, God begins to come to Job and God takes Job on a tour of the created world and asks Job questions, which to be fair, Job could not possibly know the answers to. And God reminds Job of several key roles that God plays in the universe. Role number one, creator. The language here is that of construction. God is the one who laid the foundations. God is the one who crafted and forged the depths. God is the great architect of all that we see and all that is unseen. And so God asks Job in chapter 38, verse four, uh, Job, where were you when I did all of this? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And the answer, of course, is uh, not yet born. 
And then the language actually switches to a much more maternal tone. The language becomes that of wombs and birthing things into being. And in all of this, God is reminding Job that Job was not there at the dawn of creation. Job is part of the created order, and therefore sitting in judgment on how God runs the world is not within the capacity or the prerogative of us as human beings. See, it's not as some assert as they look at the book of Job that you and I are worms, never meant to question the actions of the sovereignty of God. It's just that God says, um, your vantage point because it is limited by time and by space, is not a good vantage point from which to make judgments about my governance of the world. Rule number two is God as creator. Uh, rule number one, rather, God as creator. Rule number two, God as sustainer of all that is. Look with me at chapter 38, verse 19, where God asks Job, uh, where does the light come from? And where does the darkness go? Can you take each to its home? Do you know how to get there? Oh, but of course you know all of this because you were born before it was all created and you are so very experienced. God essentially says to Job, oh, oh, do you keep the constellations in their place, Orion and Ursa Major? Yeah, I don't think so. Sounds like God's being not a little satirical and sarcastic, doesn't it? In the language of the New Testament book of Colossians, the writer reminds us of this. Through Christ, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. God made the things that we can see and the things that we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. And verse 17 says this, he existed before anything else and he holds all of creation together. He, being Christ, sustains all things. A few years ago, uh, we went to Maui as a family and we got up in the middle of the night and we drove up to the rim of an ancient volcanic crater some 10,000 feet above sea level. Maybe uh, some of you know of it or have been there. The place is called Haleakala, which means the house of the sun in Hawaiian. And the legend goes that Maui lassoed the sun from its journey across the sky as he stood on the volcano's summit, slowing its descent to make the day last a little bit longer. Kids, I just got some Moana vibes there uh, for you a minute ago. And when we were standing there in that pre-dawn chilly darkness at the top of this mountain, a park ranger comes out of their little hut as the sun crests above the clouds and they sing. They sing the sun up into the sky for the day. It was pretty majestic and powerful and I kind of get chills thinking about it even now. But if you step back from it for a minute, we need to be clear that that singing didn't make the sun come up that day. Psalm 19, and in many other places in the scriptures, we're reminded that God has set the earth and the sun and heavenly bodies in their place. And whether you get up tomorrow and pull the covers back over your head in COVID defiance, the sun is still going to come out tomorrow. 
you know, except when it comes up or we can't see it because we're in the midst of a rainy and wet spell here in the coast in January. So God is creator, God is sustainer, and the third role that God plays both in Job's world and in our lives is that of provider. The flow of thought switches from the cosmic world to the animal world, and God asks Job, oh, Job, do you give the lions or the mountain goats or the wild donkeys or the oxen or the ostrich or the horse or the hawks or the eagles their food and their homes? Do you know where, Job, and how and when they bring forth their young? Again, the answer is quite clearly a no. And then the writer brings up two mythically powerful images from the ancient world. One is behemoth, which could be potentially a hippopotamus. Now, if you watch the TELUS commercials, you likely don't think of the hippo as a symbol for dangerous strength because they look kind of cute. But the surprising fact that we learned when we spent some time in Tanzania in the Serengeti is that hippos actually kill more people in Africa each year than lions do. You do not want to go near the hippos. They are seriously dangerous creatures, people. And the other thing, the other creature that's mentioned is the character of Leviathan. And we meet this beast in Psalm chapter 74, verse 13, and also in Isaiah chapter 27 in the sea. And in the Old Testament, the sea is a symbol of chaos and disorder. And over the brooding waters and over Leviathan, God comes and God asserts God's control. But what's most interesting to me is that in four chapters of talking, God actually never responds directly to Job's question of why behind suffering. As Bible scholar Pete Enns says, God's answer reminds me of teenagers asking their dad, Dad, what in the world did I do to get grounded? And they ask their dad and the dad answers, oh, do you go to work every day? Do you pay the bills around here? Do you keep the lights on? Were you there when I married your mother and when we bought our first house? End quote. It's, it's kind of a non-answer to a very direct question in some ways. And that's actually part of what makes the book of Job a bit confusing. Remember at the start of our journey, we said that the book isn't actually designed to answer some of the questions that we bring to it and that we often demand of it. In some ways, the book of Job is designed to push us, to help us ask better questions about the way that the world works. The writer of Job is asking, what's the link between prosperity and piety? I mean, if I'm good, doesn't God owe me goodness? And conversely, if I'm experiencing bad things, doesn't this mean I was bad in some way? But to that question, in Job's uh, response at the end here, God basically says, uh, as a created being, you're not in a very good position to judge the answer to that question. And so maybe, just maybe, one of the points of the book is actually to focus less on the answers and more on the questions that Job raises, because Job forces us to ask good questions. One of the questions that we need to ask is, 
what kind of a God am I in relationship with? And God answers Job, I am the one who created you. I am the one who sustains the world in which you live. I am the one who made the world so wonderfully complex and chaotic. And so yes, bad things happen, but you need to know that I am very much still in control and I invite you to trust me. See, we wanna wrestle simple answers out of the book of Job. Well, if God is so good and powerful, why is there suffering in the world? And God responds to that line of inquiry by saying, in essence, you're not in a position to make that claim. I created a world that is both ordered and beautiful, but it is also wild and dangerous. The world is not designed as a giant cause and effect slot machine where you put good things into it and good things come out back to you. Because sometimes in this life, friends, you and I both know that wicked people prosper and good people suffer. And sometimes good people prosper and wicked people suffer. But the book of Job invites us to reframe some of that and remind ourselves that God is not in the business of transactional piety. In other words, God will, God will not be bullied into blessing you just because you think you are on your best behavior. Even Job's restoration at the end of chapter 42 is not some kind of magic formula for prosperity gospel. Notice the language in chapter 42, verse 10. It says that the Lord restored the fortunes of, or in the Hebrew it says, the Lord turned the captivity of Job and gave him a double portion. And that language of double portion is often used throughout the scripture to indicate God's restoration or reversal of something that was wrong or broken and to say that God is in the business of restoring and healing it. For example, in Isaiah chapter 40, God says he's gonna give a double portion to those who have been exiled and who return to God. And so the end of the book isn't this kind of proof text for the prosperity gospel. Oh, if you just stick with this suffering and learn what you have to learn, then God will give you more stuff. This is a great parabolic moment of relief and vindication that God and Job are still in right relationship with one another. Well, that's all fine and good, but what does it mean for you and for me and I find myself, as I was reading these chapters this week, struck and challenged by Job's two responses to God. The first uh, response that Job has to God's speech is at the start of chapter 40. Look with me at chapter 40, verses one to five. Then the Lord said to Job, do you still wanna argue with the Almighty? You are God's critic, but do you have the answers? And Job responds to the Lord, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. See, Job's early response in the book is to rail and to question and to ask why again and again and to get angsty with his friends. But his first response when confronted with the deep and mysterious ways in which God works as creator, sustainer, and provider is perhaps the most helpful response of all. Job chooses silence. 
instead of launching back at God with a half-baked retort. Well, how can you expect me to answer these ridiculous questions? Are you not even listening to me, God? What's about the questions to which there are no good answers? Job realizes that the best response in the face of mystery and the unknown is not more words, it's not to rail harder, it's not to ask for a mistrial, it's actually to sit in silence. Psalm 46 verse 10 invites us in similar language to be still or cease striving and know, recognize or affirm that I am God, says the Lord. I will be honored by every nation. I will be honored throughout the world. See, friends, when we quiet our hearts, whether it's at the start of the day, whether it's for a moment in traffic at that red light or in the quiet of the midnight hour when we tiptoe out of our toddler's room after they are finally asleep, when we pause from the pushing and the questioning to be quiet before God, to simply breathe out the anxiety of the unknown and to breathe in and receive and sit in the loving presence and power of God. When we do that, we realize that sometimes more words or more action are actually not the solution. Silence is. And as a person who likes words and who likes action, I find this very challenging. So let me ask you, when was the last time that you sat in silence? We're gonna talk more about how to do this well in our next series. But till then, maybe for you, your takeaway for today is just to allow yourself some more time this week to be still, to figure out a way to quiet all of the noise around you about the future and the COVID chatter and the daily news cycle and the constant din of social media and the dinging of your phone and just be silent for a period of time and say to God, God, I'm coming to you and I have nothing to say. I come just as I am. I'm here not to get something from you, not to talk at you, Jesus, but to be with you in silence, to wait with you, to wait for you. See, in that moment of silence, Job realizes in a fresh way the complexity and the immensity of the world. He has a perspective shift, which can be helpful for you and I from time to time. And the second response that Job has that I find challenging is at the start of chapter 42. It's a bit more puzzling because while it seems and sounds similar to his first response in English, the Hebrew, which is the original language that it was written in, is actually some of the trickiest and most ambiguous language in the whole of the Old Testament outside the book of Hosea, making it very difficult to translate or to build your case for the meaning of the book of Job on it. And uh, Job 42 verse 6 says, for example, Job could be saying, I sit in dust and ashes to sow my repentance, meaning that Job is saying, I acknowledge that you are God. 
Or he could be saying, I repent concerning my dust and ashes, meaning, okay, God, I've learned my lesson. Or it could mean I repent of my dust and ashes, meaning essentially, oh, that's it. I'm leaving my piety behind. This whole God thing is nonsense. I am done with this and I am out of here. And friend, I don't know where you're at on your spiritual journey today, but I want to invite you to continue to wrestle. Continue to ask good, hard questions, knowing that God can handle them and we as your journey partners here at Jericho can handle them as well. And you might be at the very beginning of your exploration and your questions might feel hostile and you might think things like, does God even exist or does God even care? Or they might be hyper specific. Know that we are a community that invites you to bring your whole self, including your hard questions, to the table for lively family dialogue. I love what the Lexingham Bible Commentary says about this puzzle in Job chapter 42. Quote, the book of Job presents an implicit argument that theology, that is reflection on the nature of God, is not so much systemic thought or systematic thought as the diverse and often conflicting claims about God that believers make as they grapple with a world beset by the dualities of joy and sorrow, wonder and dread, prosperity and poverty, war and peace. All of us hold, in other words, many claims about the nature of God and the way that the world is that compete vigorously with one another. And God doesn't swoop in and actually give a categorical answer to the problem in an abstract way. God answers Job's questions in a personal way. And this actually gives us insight into how God deals with the world and the problem of evil not theoretically, but personally. We're gonna move now into a time of celebrating communion together digitally. And so I wanna encourage you to ready the elements that you have with you in the space that you're engaging with us. Whatever you have will do, friend, whether it's bread or crackers or wine or orange juice, I wanna just remind you that this time is about a right response to the revelation of God in Jesus. It's not about whether you get the elements just right from our perspective. And so you can pause the live stream if you want or need to, to prepare yourself and then to prepare some bread or some juice. And the words to our communion response song made me think about the tour of creation that God gave to Job, plumbing the heights of the heavens and the depths of the inner workings of nature. And yet uh, the songwriter rightly says, we're the whole realm of nature mine. In other words, if I owned everything in the created order, that would be a present far too small. The reason love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And so the message translation of Job chapter 42, verses five and six puts it this way. Job saying to God, I admit, I once lived by rumors of you, but now, now I have it firsthand from my own eyes and my own ears. So would you forgive me? I'm sorry. 
I'll never do that again, I promise. I will never again live on the crusts of hearsay, crumbs of rumor. See, friends, one of the greatest tragedies of life is that we can actually live on the crusts of secondhand God knowledge, the crumbs of a rumor of God's loving presence when you and I are invited to know the one who is the creator and the ruler and sustainer of all. And so when we come to the communion table, it's a way of saying, here I am, God. I want to meet with you. I want to know you more. I want to see you with my own eyes. And when we come, we humble ourselves and we say, God, please forgive me. I want to know you more. I don't want to live on hearsay or rumors. I want to know you. And so friends, Jesus calls us here and now to come to this table. You who are beloved in Christ, come not because you must, but because you may. Take and eat the bread. This represents the body of Christ that was broken for you. Jesus' body was broken, not rhetorically, but bodily and physically so that you, friend, could be made whole. Take and eat. And take of the cup. The cup represents the blood of Christ that was shed for you. And Jesus poured out his life, not metaphorically, but literally and physically, so that all who believe in him might have life everlasting. Take, drink. Let's worship together, friend, as we move into this time of responding to God in worship, in song. And so I'd invite you, you can either take this time and sit in silence, or I'd encourage you to sing and receive and proclaim the vast and endless grace of God's love for you. <laughs>